Ladies and gentlemen, this is Book Music. I am Tosh. And I'm Kimley. And each episode of Book Music, we focus on a book about music history. It could be a memoir, a biography, or anything to do with a music subject. But it's always a book connected to music. Is that correct, Kimley? Well, so far, so good. But today, sir, is it's actually this is a this is a very much of a different show than our normal shows because we're going to talk about two books today. Two books. One is Peter and the Wolves, published by Smogbell, and the other book is Why LaBelle Matters, published by the University of Texas Press, all by the same author, Adele Berte, and she's our guest today too, Kimley. Yes. Welcome, Adele. Thank you so much for having me, Tosh and Kimley. I'm excited. Did I, did I pronounce your last name correctly? You did. I mean, if you were going to get real Italian on it, you'd say Bertei. Bertei. But Bertei yeah, is but, fine. Okay. I mean, it's, it's been very mangled in the past, you know. I try to, I, I try to stay with my Los Angeles accent because I'm born and raised here and yeah, I'd be, be phony if I didn't do that. So. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> uh, Adele, with you, um, you're you're actually a massive subject matter. I mean, everything you represent, pretty much everything I like about music. Oh, thank you. Wow. I first heard of you when 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 of the No New York um, No Wave album came out with because you're the you're one of the original Contortions. Yeah. Yeah. That's correct. And, that is amazing to me. I don't because I, I, um, that record had a huge, profound effect on me. Wow! Yeah. In a good way. Oh, good, good. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think it had a profoundly disturbing effect on others <laughs> at the time. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. Yeah. But you know, your your range. I mean, you're first of all, you're like a superb writer. You're an incredible writer. Thank you. Thanks. Both books are very well written. Um, very touching. Very moving. Um, your music history is like exceptional. Um, pretty much, I, I mean, I don't want to overpraise because that sounds kind of show busy, but you're pretty exceptional. Oh, <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm turning about five shades of scarlet here. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's great about a podcast. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, this is the problem, Kimley. We, we got about, I don't know, we have like eight or nine shows booked in the future, right? Uh-huh. I think we should like cancel and just focus on Adele for nine episodes. <laughs> oh, there's certainly enough content, wow. that's for sure. <laughs> wow. Oh my God. I'm going to be like, uh, the helium is filling my head and going through the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> well deserved. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Um, the subject matter is kind of boggling to me. I mean, this is another, this is another why I feel like we should do like eight hours. I mean, <laughs> One book is about uh, LaBelle, the, the soul trio, mm-hmm. uh, three um, uh, Black American singers mm-hmm. who, are, who I know very little about, but I was such a huge reader of Interview Magazine during the late 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. And it seems like LaBelle always come up like in the, in the music or in the social. So she was very, I mean, technically, I guess, well, I should ask you, I mean, but like, to me, LaBelle is very much part of sort of the New York music scene or East Coast scene of the punk era and the, and the no wave era, you know, and, you know, the name comes together a lot for me. Right. Well, I, you know, I think it was one of the members, Nona Hendricks, who was uh, more associated with the no wave scene uh-huh. because um, LaBelle was breaking up just as we were hitting the studio with Brian Eno and doing No New York. So, mm. um as as when they dissolved, Nona went into very deep noise music, and like that that kind of period where bands like Material and uh-huh. um, Was Not Was and uh, Defunct and all of those bands were starting to kind of you know mix it up with punk uh, punk funk kind of, right. and then you know the noise aspects of No Wave. She had a band called Zero Cool. Um, which was extremely dissonant, but also, you know, it, it had, a, it had, the songs had shape, but, uh-huh. but for LaBelle primarily um, they were just beloved by gay audiences uh-huh. and, and, you know, and, and the black arts movement, they kind of came alive during the black arts movement. 
uh-huh. which started happening in Harlem and uh, in probably in the late fifties, early sixties. I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not very well read about the Black Arts Movement. There's a lot of um, Black scholars who are writing about it um, mm-hmm. and have written about it, but um, yeah, I mean they they were just an extraordinary project because um, you know it was also a project of black women working with white women and uh-huh. controlling their own career they had a white you know they had a woman manager a woman lawyer a woman accountant I mean they were very much um, you know uh, their own little satellite and I think in some ways um, that was kind of disturbing to the male establishment in the music industry at the time because they were doing extraordinary music uh-huh. after, Lady Marmalade, right, and before Lady Marmalade, but it was just a little too much female black ferocity for um, the white male establishment in terms of the music industry. With LaBelle, the band, were they conscious of being like having surrounded by female uh, uh, management and talent? I mean, was this? Like- oh yeah, that was all, that was all their choice. Uh-huh. That was all their choice. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty amazing. I, I mean, even today, you still don't see that very often. And it's interesting that, I mean, I was wondering, you know, it, was it a detriment? I mean, I think, obviously, I think creatively, it would probably was a benefit. But in terms of hits, you know, and getting support from the record labels who probably weren't too keen on dealing with all of these women. Yes. <laughs> it's kind of frustrating. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, they, they had so many powerful songs that were more on the political spectrum of things and um and their their male peers like stevie wonder and the isley brothers you know with songs like fight the power and you haven't done nothing and labelle were were, they were doing political songs as well at that time that were just the tightest little they could have been such huge hits but they were not getting the support that the guys were getting. So, you know, it was, it was very frustrating after a while. And, you know, I think it probably added to, to them having to dissolve at a certain point, like they couldn't get much farther. But, you know, in their day, they were breaking all kinds of paradigms, you know. They were so theatrical, mm. um, political. No one in terms of harmony groups had ever sounded like that blend of theirs before. I call it like gospel punk because it was mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. aggressively out there, but yet at the same time, sonically, just it would give you goosebumps, you know. Um, and you know, if you can, you can we name any harmony groups today that we actually like? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, uh, harmony group. Um. Uh. <laughs> well, it's yeah. interesting because you talk about how they were the first of the like '60s traditional girl groups who managed to break out of that framework, right? Um, yeah. You know, and it's like, what do you think it is about them that allowed them to do that, where so many of the other girl groups just kind of got stuck and you know had to disband? I think a lot of it had to do with. Um, you know, the fact that they were running on ethers at a certain point because all of the, you know, uh, British boy bands were self-contained bands and they wrote their own songs. And um, and Vicky Wickham, who would become their manager, uh, was the manager uh, uh, and producer of, well, not manager, but a producer of Ready, Steady, Go mm-hmm. um, over in London which was the first show to put rock and roll on the air. You know, she, Mm -hmm. she was responsible for putting bands like the Rolling Stones and Jimi Hendrix on television in front of British audiences for the first time. And, uh, and they had met her because they'd gone over as their traditional girl group, Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells to perform on Ready, Steady, Go. And they formed a friendship with Vicky. So when they returned to America and, you know, the, it was just so tough for them to continue as as they were. Um, they had hit a little bit of a low point and um, decided to reach out to Vicky to see if she had any advice for them because they really, you know, got on well with her. Mm-hmm. And she invited them to come over to London. She goes, why don't you come over here and let's think about where to go next. And uh, Nona Hendricks, the songwriter of the band, had already started writing songs, but once they got to London and they started talking to Vicky and Vicky knew so much about what it took, what, what were the components for rock stardom, not just to be, you know, a good little band, but 
like iconic rock stardom. And, uh, you know, it was, it was Bowie and it was the Stones and it was Mark Bolin. What, what would it take for a, for a girl group to, you know, come out in that type of a creation mm-hmm. um, as rock, rock icons? And they collaborated with Vicky and she kind of just, you know, incited them to really set, be authentic about what they were feeling as black women at that time in America and to just be free with their theatricality and, and dream big. And, and um, it really started to happen for them after that. Vicki Wickham is a really interesting person. It seems like she's been coming up a lot in the books we've been reading lately. And um, oh. it's kind of amazing how much power she had. And I mean, she was a young woman. I mean, what was she like in her early 20s when she started? Yes. Um, on Ready, Steady, Go. And yes. um, she's such an impressive person. And uh, she was working with Dusty Springfield. She was a big part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I love the connection with LaBelle. It's so great. How long did LaBelle stay in London or in England? I think they, I think they stayed there for a good six months or so. Uh-huh. They were there for quite a while. Did they make records in England or, or just basically? Just, no. They no. were writing songs. They uh-huh. were, like, you know, cooking up kind of, you know, well, what they would do next and um, thinking about how they would, you know, present now that they were, kind of taking off the, the bouffant wigs and the high yeah. heels and the, you know, uh, little prom dresses. So, <laughs> so it was, uh, you know, it was a real kind of brainstorming creative period for them. It's interesting how so many American artists went to England to reinvent themselves in a similar mm. manner, mm-hmm. like Jimi Hendrix, um, yeah. Walker Brothers, um, yeah. and my yeah. beloved uh, band uh, Sparks all oh, yeah. went, went to England to reinvent themselves in Sounds like it's sort of in a similar light as LaBelle, what they did. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And also the fashion at that time, right? Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. in London, my gosh, you know, I mean, Biba was huge. And Sarah Sarah Dash, one of the women in LaBelle, was telling me that, you know, when she came back wearing black lipstick, like the Biba girls mm-hmm. were wearing in London, you know, people in her community were like, what are you doing? You know, but, <laughs> I mean, uh, but yeah, it was a very, very exciting time on all fronts in, in, in fashion and music for sure. Yeah. Well, and their whole visual thing became a big part of who they were, correct? I mean, they, not just the costumes, but the theatrics of their shows. Talk a little bit about that. Cause that's really amazing. Yeah. Well, um, uh, there, there was a designer named Larry Legaspi, who um, was incredibly creative. Had a place in the village called um, Moonstone, a boutique, and he was a huge fan of Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells when they were a girl group. Because I mean, Patti's pipes, no one could outshine Patti when it came to vocals. Yeah, uh, the one thing that they lacked um, as a girl group was they didn't have the same star-making machinery as Motown or, you know, the Muscle Shoals people or, you mm-hmm. know, they didn't have that, that kind of built-in factory of songwriting, um, brill building, etc. So they didn't really make it as big as the Supremes or some of the other groups. But, um, yeah, so Larry saw them in their new incarnation, which was not quite as fashionable as they, they wanted to be. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I write about that a little bit in the book, but mm-hmm. and, and he he talked to Vicky. He said, "You know, they could really use a makeover and <laughs> ideas." So, um, and Nona had started writing things with a little bit of a space age feel in terms of the songs. I think they were probably in. Uh, they didn't tell me this, but I would assume they were uh, influenced by David Bowie. Uh-huh. Um, you know. And um, and people like Sun Ra as well, you know. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but so Larry started designing these space costumes for them. But it wasn't just the silver, beautiful, you know, eccentric uh, space costumes. But he also got into this kind of like a mythic, poetic um, thing with feathers, and it was a mix of like bird-like creatures. It was all very avian. It was all about you know, <laughs> flight in space, and mm-hmm. and, um, and and that really kind of catapulted them into a into a new idea of how far they could allow their imaginations to go. 
Mm. Because, you know, people in rock, for, for the most part, during that time, except for some of the guys, there was this kind of like straitjacket on the imagination. Right. And, and, it, and it was people like Bowie who started to play with theatrics. Uh, and, and you know, in a very, very exciting way, like the Diamond Dogs tour. I mean, I don't know if any of you saw that, but I did. Oh my God! You know, yeah, I, that was breathtaking to me. And so when Vicky started working with them on the Nightbirds album, and and they were doing the spacesuits with Larry Legaspi, and Nona was writing these incredible songs, they decided they needed to go on a tour where they only picked theaters where they could have like a hydraulic lift right. through the floor <laughs> or mm-hmm. could be suspended from wires. Right. So, you know, they, they ended up performing in a lot of these beautiful jewel box theaters that were more prone towards uh, uh, opera and, and, you know, more theater pieces. And, and it really worked for them. Mm-hmm. Um, the first time I saw them, my, you know, I was just absolutely (laughs) smacked by the theatrics of it all you know it was like seeing these these incredible black women singers coming down from the wires with these you know wings a wingspan 20 feet wide and you know silver spacesuits and the music was such a great mix too I mean it was like a mix of incredible like New Orleans funk and um uh, and pop and soul and gospel and rock. It was a hybrid that, again, was very innovative and new. People hadn't heard it before. Yeah, it was so exciting for the time. I'll bet. Now, I love that you do talk about two seemingly disparate venues in New York that were very important to LaBelle, and that's the Apollo and the Metropolitan Opera House. <laughs> I mean, that's so great. How did they manage to span that divide? I mean, that's really kind of amazing. I know, huh? What what a what a trajectory. Um, yeah. You know, they were they were thought of as the darlings um, of the of the Apollo, and and um, that was their main core audience for a very very long time, and they would always return too. But um, I you know it was after the whole transition period with Vicki Wickham um, during that that Nightbirds period with you know the space and 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 the avian stuff going on that they um, had a hit called Lady Marmalade which we all know mm-hmm. and, and Lady Marmalade allowed them to uh, have enough money because you know tour support you need to you know you need financial help to put on shows of that nature but I guess I guess they approached the Met and the Met went for it. And it was one of the most, apparently one of the most exciting shows of the 1970s. People still talk about that show at the Met because the audience prompted for everyone to dress in silver. Mm -hmm. So the audience showed up in these incredible costumes, you know, like, uh, you know, some some guys showed up with chap silver chaps and silver sprayed butt cheeks. And, <laughs> and it was just, you know, it was just wild, and it was such Not a bad. great mix of um, of of peoples, you know, that that came out for that. So. And you know what else is interesting is it seems like a lot of people who ended up going into creative careers themselves. It's almost like that famous Sex Pistols show where everybody who went ended up and went and started a band. It seems like mm. there were a lot of you know, really uh, uh, people who became quite influential in music and the arts and theater that went to see that LaBelle show and talked about how inspiring it was. Right, right. You know, uh, Luther Vandross was a huge Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells fan. Mm-hmm. And he was uh, singing background vocals, I think, shortly after he started seeing them as a girl group. But he was at that show and, and mm-hmm. just like, just goes off on how well did go off on how incredible it was and you know he came into his own as as a singer um based on his love for patty labelle and the bluebells wow wow see i love that (laughs) (laughs) the influence you know it keeps it keeps everything going i love that you're you're like you've you've been like a huge labelle fan like for a really long time even before when they were like LaBelle and the Blue and the Bluebirds, right? I mean, you were a fan at the time. Yeah, the, I, I was a fan of the Bluebells. She, um, they Bluebell, did a sorry. they did a song called um, 
I sold my heart to the junk man. Yes. <laughs> and, and I, I was actually um, living with Peter Lochner when I heard about this song. And, I, and, you know, automatically our brains went to a certain kind of junk, but that's not what they were talking about. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we ended up writing something very derivative called um, My Sister Sold Her Heart to the Junk Man. So. Ah. <laughs> a tribute of sorts. A tribute of sorts, yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned LaBelle in your Peter and the Wolves book. So I was yes. like, okay, this goes way back for oh, you. Yeah. <laughs> oh. This isn't like a recent, like, oh, they're cool now. You've yeah. always loved them. Well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, part of it has to do with having been a queer kid when I was, you know, when I was young. I, I came out very early um, as a teenager. And um, I think the first time I heard them, sing aside from Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells and that I sold my heart to the junk man was when they did the record with Laura Nero. Mm. Gonna do a miracle. Mm -hmm. And um you know as a lesbian in those days we were we were very uh I mean if you looked like gendered like a boy and people thought you might be a girl you could get you could get really beaten badly harassed. I mean, it was not easy in those days. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's still problematic. But uh, in those days, it was just horrible. Mm -hmm. And we didn't have any role models whatsoever, um, you know, in terms of music or act, you know, uh, movies or whatever. And um, I remember hearing that record and the power of women t singing together and and also, there was the first song I ever heard of a woman writing a love song to another another woman on that record, which mm -hmm. is called Desiree, and it had such a profound effect on me because you know, as someone who who wanted to sing as well, mm -hmm. and the idea that that you know this kind of sound could emanate from these women together, um, it, it was it was revolutionary for me, and it gave me a lot of confidence as a, you know, as a, as a kid, um, uh, in terms of, you know, going out into the world and actually trying to do something similar because, you know, it, without role models, it's very, very hard. You write that, um, you said, uh, Patty's been queer friendly since the Chitlin circuit days. And you say, yes, there was a gay side of the circuit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Um, yeah. so, I mean, they've always been very important to the LGBTQ community. Yes, very much so. And I think I also, I'm pretty sure I mentioned in the book that during the AIDS crisis, LaBelle's music was just pumping through the clubs, you know, right. and it was, it was really a, a music that was so full of love. And, and during AIDS, the gay community needed that love in, in, in buckets, you know, and yeah. uh, so they really embraced LaBelle. And you're, you're from Cleveland originally, correct? Yes. Yes. And how how has the Cleveland like landscape influenced you or not influenced you? What, is that city very prominent in your life? Yeah, um, Cleveland. When I was growing up, uh, I had my stepfather was Italian. He was extremely racist. Mm -hmm. My mother was schizophrenic, um, not racist at all. Quite the opposite. Um, it was a segregated city. Um, uh, very rough parts of town on the white side and the black side, uh, if you were poor, yes. which we were. Uh -huh. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it was pretty tough. I mean, I, I had like kind of a rough and tumble childhood. Mm. Um, but uh, when I when I met Peter Lochner, um, was, it was just at the moment where I was finally finding the strength to sing live. And he saw me get up, and uh, and guest with a with a blues band, and I had heard about him. You know, he was kind of like the the, the bad boy of the punk scene in in New York. Uh, I mean, in Cleveland, he had a really crazy reputation that he was, you know, he he was a drunk and he would show up at places with guns and and I would hear all of this about him. But I also heard his guitar playing mm -hmm. um, early on and was just bowled over by his his um, incredible playing and his charisma on stage. He was very charismatic. Mm -hmm. So when I met him and he wanted to um, 
work with me, I was just floored and, and, and followed up on it. And we ended up becoming very close friends. And, and the, the scene at the time was very much centered around Perubu. Perubu were the superstars of Cleveland. Um, scene. Most of the guys in, in that scene were very misogynistic about women and music. They didn't really support women. Peter was the only person who did. Huh. Um, he had a band with two women uh, called uh, Sue Schmidt and Debbie Smith uh, called Friction. And they were the first two rock musicians I'd ever met. I mean, oh. you know, we're talking 1976. Uh-huh. And, um, women just weren't playing music. There was another woman named Cindy Black who played Mellotron. Um, but, but, you know, for the most part, Peter was almost shamed for being so supportive of women in music because it was a very macho scene, except for a couple of exceptions. A couple of the guys in Parable were actually very cool about it. Huh. Uh, so, you know, it was rough. And, and Peter and I always had this dream that we were going to move to New York together. But his, um, his demons kind of... Kind of uh, Took over? Yeah, very sadly. Huh. Um, he, you know, he... He was an alcoholic, and mm-hmm. at that time, we didn't know, you know, there wasn't any consciousness about AA or recovery programs, and, um, you know, he, uh, he, didn't, he didn't make it, and right. so I ended up leaving uh, Cleveland after, shortly after he died and to kind of carry on the dream that we had together. Peter and the Wolves is such a powerful read. I mean, you know, I, I heard of Peter Lochner. Throughout the decades, you know, but I really don't know his music that well. I do know, you know, that he was part of the um, narration of the uh, the start of Perubu and you know, contributing mm-hmm. to Perubu. But reading the book, it's such a uh, a beautiful. I want to say it's like a love story, but it's not really a love story. But it, but it has like a lot of love in it for me. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, there are like seven kinds of love, <laughs> according to the Greek, <laughs> right? Seven. Let's see. One, two, three. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right now I'm counting my fingers. <laughs> I wish there were ten. We need more. But, um, but uh, no, it is a love story. It's a love story about a gay girl and a guy, a cis, cis hetero guy who was probably queer himself. And I, you mm-hmm. know, I kind of write about that in the book because. Um, uh, yeah, well, read people if you want to know more. Read, yes. the, read the book, but uh, yeah. it's uh, yeah, it is a love story. I mean, you don't have to have um, sexual intimacy to be to be in love with somebody. No, no. Yeah. Clearly, he is very, very important, very dear friend. Oh yeah, um, and it's really a beautiful memoir. Um, yes. thank you, thank you. Um, and it's, it was interesting to me that, you know, you really captured that time in one's life when you're a young adult, you know, and you're technically an adult, but most of us still were trying to figure out what the fuck we were doing at that point in our lives, you know, yeah. you capture that sort of that, you know, that nervous energy and then the, just sort of the, the excitement of exploring what the possibilities are in your life and, and all the kinds of different relationships you're trying to figure out. And I did wonder, like, did you um, keep journals at the time or is your memory just that <laughs> vivid? I mean, you really sort of captured a lot of things, especially describing, you know, seeing the Ramones. I loved your description of Joey Ramone. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, how, how did you keep journals or? I um, didn't. I didn't. I just really wow. like uh, when I write memoir, I really try and, and just go into the situations, you know, go, walk through the past with my eyes open mm-hmm. and and write, write in that. I try to be evocative and bring the reader into the into the actual scene of, of yeah. what's happening, you know. But I, I do remember a lot. I probably have a pretty selective memory, though. Mm-hmm. Don't we all? Well, we all do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, you remember the good bits, so yeah. that's what's important. I remember the good bits. Do I always <laughs> tell the bad bits about myself? I don't know. Oh, I probably should. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Peter and the Wolves, which is the title of the book, that is also the band that you're you are in with Peter, correct? Well, actually, the band was called the Wolves, but oh. um, just for the sake of uh, you know 
poetics, I thought, you know, Peter and the wolves would sound better. That's a nice <laughs> ring. That's a nice yeah. ring. Yeah. And you were in that band. I was, yeah, with him. Um, yeah, and we would trade off lead vocals. And I mean, honestly, because Peter was so fucked up for most of our shows, and we only did a few shows, mm -hmm. um, my recollections of those shows are not that exciting. Mm -hmm. Because it was like I was just a wreck trying to figure out what was next, you know, in, in the moment while we were doing those shows because he was so incredibly volatile and um, just kind of out of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I was the new kid. I, I was looking to him for, for guidance. And um, whenever we'd play, he would take courage, so to speak, to the point of being legless, you know. Mm. So... Um, yeah, I don't have very, very uh, specific memories of those shows because of that. I, I think I was just, you know, shut down and scared when we were performing. Were there, were there any recordings from the band that exist? Um, I think somewhere? there might be one or two recordings. I think I think Frank Mousseri, who put out the, the box set of Peter mm -hmm. Lochner, um, might have access to recordings. But I think... Here's the thing I loved about Frank's um, uh, curatorial eye when he put that box set together is that what, one of the reasons I also wrote the book was that Peter was always uh, maligned as this total fuck up and total, you know, yeah. uh, nobody wanted anything to do with him, blah, 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 blah. But that wasn't true. And I knew an incredibly generous, uh, sensitive um, guy. Right. Um, and who was so giving to women musicians at a time when that was just so looked down upon. And um, I had to tell that story because of that. And, and Frank, I think what I really loved about his curatorial eye was the fact that he didn't want to put every piece of whatever onto that box set. He, he just wanted to represent him in a way that was, um, you know, that showed that showed some of the weaknesses, but also his strengths and not in a way that made it look like he was just a macabre fuck up, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. um, so I, so I appreciated that. And, and it's the box set is actually what led Frank and I together to do the, to uh, publish the book. Cause you wrote the book some years ago, like 2013 or. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I initially wrote it. Um, it was going to be uh, part one of a book I'm working on now called um, no New York. Oh. Uh, it's going to be part one, but uh, I uh, decided to put it out because I had done a Kickstarter campaign to write No New York, but I didn't ask for enough money. Uh, oh. <laughs> uh, but, well, what do you uh, need? Do you, maybe, maybe Kimmy, I can talk. <laughs> All right, everyone, we're asking for donations because we need Adele to finish this book. Yeah, come on. We can have you back. <laughs> but but you know, I didn't want to be an ingrate and not give my supporters something, yeah. so I, right. I, I gave them um, the Peter and the Wolves book. I had a, a hardcover printed up of oh. it, but I didn't sell it. I just gave it to my supporters uh, um, in turn okay. for their donations. And it was never like commercially available. Oh, so then when, yeah. you know, when I saw the box set and Frank and I were talking, I was like, wait, this could really work because he yeah. understood Peter and, you know, um, I knew he would do a good job with it. And he, it, he, I'm so pleased with. He did a beautiful or yeah. it's a beautifully designed book. Yes. Yes. And pills get uh, in the hand, you know, just, it's just great and great. Yeah. And some great images of him and you. Um, great artist who put to, put it together too, Ron Crash, who uh, did the artwork, a Cleveland guy. Hmm. So I was really grateful for the way it turned out. Yeah. Now, your prose writing feels very poetic to me. Does music play a part in your writing style? I'm I'm guessing it does. Um, <laughs> Do you feel like the two work yeah, together? Yeah, I mean, I guess so. I don't. I can't listen to music when I'm writing because it's too distracting. Right, but. Um, you know, music has always been a, such a driving force in my life. It's always been uh, a bit of a, a life raft, you mm -hmm. know, um, during like, like some very troubling waters. Yeah. Um, so, so I do, I, I do think about that when I'm writing. I, you know, I, I, I do read aloud uh, what I'm going to put down on the page to see how it sounds. And 
mm-hmm. and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. You you do mention um, in the LaBelle book how, you know, how important music is to deal with trauma, you know, and you mentioned, you know, for yourself personally and also for Patti LaBelle. And I love that you bring that up because to me, you know, whenever somebody starts saying, you know, they want to defund the arts and all this kind of stuff, and I think, mm. no, you know, we need the arts so much. They're so important. Oh, they're, so important. They're such a life force. And I love that you talk about that. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's, um, I could go on and on about this, but I've spent a lot of time in Trinidad and, and, um, it is one of, it, it is the most creative culture you could ever imagine. Mm. Um, because from the time you're born, you are, um, you're, you're taught to, you know, play with, uh, paint and make music and, um, create masks and uh, take part in rituals for carnival. And carnival isn't just, you know, a certain time of year. You're, people are prepared for it all year round. Yeah. And it's this ritualistic celebration of one another. And it's a culture that's, you know, it's, it's African, it's indigenous Indian, it's um, East Indian, Portuguese, Chinese, and there's no, there's no division. There's no segregation. Everybody is just collaborating and celebrating one another's cultures and creating these, this incredible hybrid hybrid of, of culture that is absolutely breathtaking. Mm. And I think one of our most basic problems in America is this idea that we have to be so divisive all the time. And it, you know, it comes from the male patriarchal thing where they want us all to be segregated, white male patriarchy. Let's keep them all divided and fighting against each other. And, you know, the internet has become a very important tool in in doing just that. But, you know, art is so important. And the fact that we're not given that, uh, uh, ability to to celebrate it in our own communities. I mean, I was doing songwriting workshops with Wayne Kramer uh, mm. of the MC5 in Twin Towers downtown, which is one of the most dangerous, you know, jails in the country. And we would go in and work with these guys. And it was the first time in their lives where they actually had like a, a workshop that had to do with creativity. You would never find that in, in their communities, right. the, the irony that you, the only time these people get exposed to art and, and creativity is in prison. Mm, I mean, yeah. how about that? You know? Yeah, so, so this is just, uh, you know, this is one of my pet peeves is that, um, in America, um, they took all the arts out of schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if we could be creative together, if we had that community creative spirit, how much more chill would this society be? You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, what was it like to teach in prison? It was extraordinary. It oh. was really, really something. And I, I also taught at Linwood. Um, I did a workshop at Linwood, the women's jail here in LA. Um, and funny enough, the women were so much more guarded about their feelings than the guys were. Oh. Mm-hmm. Women were very, very shut down, and it took a lot to get them to expose. Um, I think women deal with a lot more shame than men uh-huh. do, and it has a lot to do with, um, you know, uh, rape and and sexual stuff in childhood, and 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 um, you know, uh, men are more apt to get in touch with their feelings and be able to write a song um, and, and not be so scared of exposing their emotions. They're, huh. they're, they're braver than the women are. Um, hmm. um, I, I mean, there were moments where I would walk out of the women's jail and the men's jail just in tears from the, the beauty of the sentiments and the, the expressions and the confessions that, that people were making, you know, in song. It was really, really amazing. It's amazing, amazing work that you do. Are you still doing that? I'm not doing it now. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to do it again in 2022. Oh, okay, yeah. Now the pandemic's kind of put a big kibosh on everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I first saw you live. You doing 
a set of Roxy music songs. Oh, oh wow. That was a fun show. You were it there. Huh? Yes, I was. Oh. I was. I want to say the front row, but I was standing in the front row. I was right. I was right underneath you. Oh. Where was this? Um, it was in a Hollywood club. Where was it? Um, oh, what was the name of that club downtown on uh, Beverly? I think uh, it is. Yeah, I can't remember. Yeah, but it was really a great that. show. I had such a great time. That was a kick-ass band. My yes. God. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Really, really good. Abby Travis was on, on bass. I mean, yes. it was so great. Yeah, yeah. And and, and the synth slider player looked like Eno. He dressed like Eno, like nineteen seventy. Ah, yes. <laughs> Paul Rossler. Paul Rossler is an amazing. Ah, guy. Paul Rossler. Okay, yeah. I heard of him. Really good. Yeah, he's amazing. It seems. Do you see the music being very visual? I mean, is music a very visual medium for you? I enjoy it more when it's visual. Because I'm thinking like LaBelle, you know, Roxy music, the glam yeah. rock situation. Yeah. And I think yeah. a lot of the, um, the, no, the no wave bands are very, very visual to me, at least. Oh, yeah. I mean, also, you know, the contortions. You, you've probably heard about how those, those shows could like end up in fisticuffs, right? I'm almost afraid to talk about the contortions with you because I'm not sure if that was good times or bad times. <laughs> well, at the time, you know, it was, I mean, have you read about Ant uh, Antonin Artaud's Theater of Cruelty? Oh, yes. Uh -huh. okay. Mm -hmm. okay, so imagine a band or <laughs> all about the Theater of Cruelty. I mean, we were basically playing music that was, was an extension of our nervous systems, right? Yes. And it had a, a very strong rhythm, yeah. but there was a lot of dissonance on top of that rhythm and a lot of polyrhythms of dissonance, right? Yeah. It was very frenetic. And James Chance is such a showman. Yes, he is. <laughs> he would dive out into the audience while the band is playing, right? Some frenetic, mm. crazed piece of music and start trying to make out with a cute woman in the front. And <laughs> her boyfriend would slug him and you know there, there there a fight would break out and then george scott the bass player and i would leap from the stage into the fight and that place and the drummer you know and uh jody would still be playing and there would be this huge you know ernest hemingway you know brawl going on in front of the stage it was it was kind of insane and that was but, a good show <laughs> that was a great show. That was a good show. And people would, I mean, we would pack Maxis, Kansas City. We'd have to do two shows wow. um, because of the, you know, the crowds out front. Sometimes wow. people got hurt. Yes. There, there would be blood. There will be blood. There will be blood. <laughs> I saw That's the probably why some people came, right? <laughs> I, came, I, I I saw the contortions. I think in 1977. I, you were not in the band at the time. And I think I it was at the Mud Club. Uh huh. It was the first time I went by myself to to see a show in New York, and I was really oh, wow. scared. <laughs> was, was, it was like taxi driver. I saw How old were you? Were, were you like 19 or something? I was a very young. 21 year old. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm, very, you know, I'm very, you know, I'm very immature. Kimberly, using <laughs> but I was scared to death, even just to walk like in the good neighborhood. Like I'm going to go downtown New York to see the contortions. And I thought there's a 50% chance I'll die tonight. <laughs> I really had that feeling. I don't think bad is going to happen. I bet you weren't in the front row for that show. I was very close and I just fell in love with his performance. He was like so amazing and so kinetic and so, um, and so mean. And so yes. uh, and I remember like, he had, he had like, he had like uh, three backup singers. Right. And I think there were, there were, there were, I think this might be like James White and the Blacks. I can't remember if it was Contortions or, you know, James White. And I the bet Blacks. you it was James White and the Blacks. And it was probably 1978. Okay. Um, I left the band like probably in very late 1977, early. But, but what impressed me in his meanness, yeah. if not borderline <laughs> evil, is one of the, one of the black women backup singers had like a blonde wig. Uh -huh. And he, he was playing a sax solo and he took the wig off her head and stuffed it into the saxophone. 
Oh, my God. She must have been so uh, horrified. I think the whole band were looking like, what? I got the feeling it was like a sort of like a pickup band. Like, they didn't really know him that well. Yeah, that, that could be because, you know, he did go through band members. Like, yes. you know, after after the core group, um, you know, well, George Scott died of a heroin. Yeah. It was just terrible. And uh-huh. uh terribly tragic and then um we all kind of left one by one you know so you and the original contortion i this is also like a stupid fan base question so excuse me but what is what is james chance like i mean what is well um he is in he's incredibly bright Mm -hmm. and i've all you know i don't want to say that this is the truth but i always suspected that he might be on this on the autism spectrum because he's he never looks you in the eye mm-hmm. he can't he can't do eye contact when he's speaking with you yeah and and his uh playing is it's very methodically um you know like these runs that mm-hmm. he'll play over and over again and he might like subvert them or change them around but they're always this these really intricate runs that he plays on his sax mm-hmm. and and you know he loves clothes and was always impeccably dressed. And when I first went over to his place, the, the only thing he had in his apartment was an ironing board and iron and some clothes. Close lines. <laughs> <laughs> the apartment with his garments hanging on. <laughs> so it was just hilarious. It was very That's so funny. <laughs> and, and his wife or his, his girlfriend, companion, life companion at the time, she managed them, correct? As well as she was a clothes person. Um, yeah, Anya, Anya Phillips. Yeah, right. she was. Um, and she was more mean than him, right? I mean, she was. She, yeah, <laughs> extremely mean. Um, oh, wow. I'm actually writing that story um, about that story now in in the No New York. Oh wow! Book. Yeah, oh, I can't yeah. wait to read your next book. <laughs> yeah, now it's interesting you know you were so involved in so many different music scenes you know when obviously you're interested in this you know new york no wave scene and then you know of course labelle um one thing that i was interested in is that you didn't really spend too much time talking about them in the context of the disco scene you mentioned it a little bit but um not a whole lot and you know obviously i think a lot of people for better or worse tend to think of them as being queens of disco to a certain extent um you know and i think disco still has some baggage attached to it but i think it's also been reassessed you know the better stuff from that you know people certainly there's a lot of people been praising giorgio Moroder, and you know it's you know the i think disco is getting a little bit more respect as the as time goes by but i was wondering how deliberate it was or do you not really see them as being part of that scene or I do, but I do see them as as being part of that scene. But I'm also aware that there are, are uh, black female scholars that are writing about LaBelle too. I I think you did you recently interview Maureen Mahone or was that Daphne Brooks? Daphne, Daphne Brooks. Brooks. Yeah. yeah, that was an incredible. Yes, I listened to part of that. I didn't listen to the whole thing, but I, I'll go back and revisit it. But Daphne writes about them in in uh, liner notes for the Revolution and. Um, Maureen Mahon um, in Black Diamond Queens. So there are people, you know, thinking about them in that context as, and writing about them in that context as well. For me, um, I didn't, it's so funny because I didn't go to a lot of gay discos um, in mm-hmm. the 70s. I was more involved in the no wave scene. But then right. when I ended up singing solo music, I, I, you know, I loved dance music at that point. So I was, I was working in dance music. For a hmm. while. You probably, you probably were punching out the audience in a LaBelle show. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, probably. Probably. Well, you know, I, mean, I only punched big guys in the audience. Though. Good for you. Really? Ah, oh, nice. <laughs> and you're quite petite, right? I'm, I'm quite one and I only went for the guys over six foot tall. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's my mighty mouth stage. It's the know? chihuahua thing. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> Um, you also wrote about this uh, PBS TV show Soul, which I wasn't familiar with. Um, no, I'm not. not but well, that I wasn't sounded either. pretty amazing. I love you say uh, 
uh, imagine black, proud, gay on TV with a syndicated show presenting black music, art, and political and intellectual discourse airing in 72 cities across the country in the early 1970s. And I was like, wow, I wish I'd seen that. <laughs> I'm a little bit younger, so I, I, I was probably too young. That's why I didn't see it. But that sounds like an amazing show. Is that available anywhere to watch, like on YouTube um, or anything? I think that it's, I think, I'm pretty sure that it's on YouTube at this point. It, it was oh. a, the show's creator, Ellis Hazlip, was such an important uh, catalyst in the black arts movement. And he was a producer. And um, I mean, you know, the people that you could see on one show, um, Louis Farrakhan and mm-hmm. uh, Gladys Knight and, you know, Sidney Poitier and, and uh, Nina Simone. I mean, it was just incredible for its time. And yeah. I, do think, I do think that it's, uh, it's either on PBS or YouTube. Uh-huh. You can find oh, okay. it for sure. It's really Great. worth a deep dive. Deep dive. I um, one of my favorite shows was Nikki Giovanni um, speaking with James Baldwin, which cool. was mind blowing. Uh-huh. So if you can find that episode, I, I highly recommend it. Okay, yeah. I'm gonna have to check that out. Yeah, I don't remember that show in Los Angeles. I don't. I may not have played in Los Angeles, but I could be wrong. Um, it, it was it was on you know one of the uh, PBS stations, stations but yeah. I don't know where in LA. I I was in New York and I wasn't even aware of it at the time when I was living there. Oh okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just discovered it when I was doing research for for Wild Oh Matters. wow. Oh okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. But it was on for a couple of years, correct? Yeah, I'm pretty sure yeah. it was. It ran for for like let, let's see, um, maybe five years, six years. Oh wow! Yeah. yeah. Another thing that I loved about LaBelle is that um, they're one of those bands that was both great as a recording artist and as a, as live performers. Not all bands, you know, some bands mm-hmm. are better live, some right. bands are better recording, but they really excelled at both. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. Um, yeah, I think I. I I think I read that they did the the vocals for the Laura Nero album in like one session for uh-huh. the, the entire LP, um, which is just astounding, you know. Yeah. I mean, and, and those were the days where there weren't, you know, they, they didn't stick compressors and, and you know, uh, uh, auto-tuning on all the right. vocals. So you could really hear mm. like the rawness of, of the performances, which is so exciting, you know? Right. Yeah. They were am- they're amazing on stage and, and, and in the studio. True. Did Lavelle use a lot of, any of the David Bowie uh, side musicians, like from um, Bowie's Young Americans? I well, Luther Vandross, I guess, is sort of that yeah. bridge between the two artists. Yeah. I think Luther would probably be the only bridge between the two, but Luther never technically worked with LaBelle unless he did something with Patty like uh-huh. you know a duet or something I'm not sure about that but um yeah there wasn't really any any crossover although I'm sure they probably had met in their mm-hmm. heyday you know and and you know Patty LaBelle and the Bluebells before they became LaBelle they toured with the Rolling Stones like the first tour that the Stones oh. did in America uh-huh. right? the Stones brought them on the bill which I can just imagine what that tour was like <laughs> a lot of punching oh man well you know there, there is one little story about that where when um I, I can't remember where they were but you know at that time they wouldn't let black people stay in the same hotels right. as the yes and um I, I there was a story where that where some of the guys in the stones were like crashing up the hotel rooms and then it very well might have been because they were so pissed off about about the uh you know the prejudice i think i think a lot of british bands at that time were shocked when they toured the u.s and they went in the south they didn't they really didn't expect that to happen right. I, I think they were shocked yeah, yeah they were yeah. and they were it is shocking <laughs> yeah, it is shocking and they were yeah. all so influenced by black music those those white boy exactly. bands yeah. you know but they also did their share of of trying to push black voices up front as much as they possibly could, you know, mm-hmm. and black musicians, which which was to their credit as well. Yeah, I remember the Rolling Stones had Howling Wolf, I think on Shindig. Mm-hmm. And they sort of, it was, it was definitely like the Rolling Stones presenting another artist type of show. Right, right. And, and Dusty yeah, no, they... Springfield was really into um, black American music. And, oh, yeah. Um, right. Brenda Wickham's and would 
come, you know, she would bring, she would tell Vicky, oh, you got to put these people on. So, you know, she would discover people here and then Vicky would put them on the air on Ready, Steady, Go. She deserves a bi- biography on her own, Vicky. Oh, sure. Poor yeah, sure. definitely. I would love to read a biography on her. Yeah. She seems really fascinating. Such, such an amazing woman, really. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. And such taste. I mean, she clearly saw, you know, she knew when somebody was going to be important before oh, yeah. anyone else did. Definitely. She was like the taste maker of London for in her day in the sixties. Mm. You know? And wasn't she responsible for Jimi Hendrix's first big didn't she bring him on Ready Steady Go before I'm pretty did? sure, yeah. I'm pretty yeah. sure she did. Yeah. I mean she wasn't the only producer on that show, but she was known as as the the go to person for talent. Right. Yeah. I think yeah. she's mentioned this. We did a show on, I can't remember the author's name, but it was all about uh, British um, gay managers and producers. Oh, yeah, yeah, of which there were many. Many. Right? many. That, that's my specialty. Most, most of them. <laughs> yes. And uh, Vicky, I think, is, 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 is featured and mentioned in the book quite often, if, yeah. if my memory serves me correctly. Yeah. yeah. So you're going to go on a book tour for, for Why the Bell Matters. Yes, and for you know, and I'll be like pimping both books actually. <laughs> yeah, no, you should because I guess the Peter and the Wolves one just came out last year. Did it come out before the pandemic or during? Or um, it came out. I think it was like in October or November of twenty twenty. Oh, no. so during the pandemic. Yes. Yeah. So you haven't yeah. really been able to get out and promote it. Yeah. yeah you're, you're, exactly. you're the only person I know who's actually going on a book tour, like a real book. book you're actually tour. going to be going to bookstores? Yeah. Well, well some bookstores, some bookstores oh, and, and, and some actually are venues. Like, for instance, when we go to Cleveland, we're going to play the Beachland Ballroom because they have a separate tavern where they can do events like this. Oh, nice. oh, so it's, okay. it's kind of a combination of venues, uh, record shops, and bookstores. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, you should send us a list of your uh, dates, and we'll put it on our page. Absolutely. Your... Yeah. I think it's actually oh, on your website. Sure. On your website. Oh, we, we is can, it? Oh, okay. Yeah. We can I'll just grab it. it. Thanks um, so much. And yeah. you're and you're and you're you're going to be with Lydia Lunch in some of these events. Yeah. Um. Uh, on the 29th of this month, actually, I'm going to appear with Lydia at the Moroccan Lounge downtown. Oh my, um, in Los Angeles. Yeah, Lydia's going to be with uh, Sylvia Black, uh, who has an incredible band. So Lydia will be performing with Sylvia and her band. And then also Lisa Kekkaula from the Bell Rays um, is going to read. And I'm going to do maybe two, two spoken word semi-musical pieces. So as an and... audience member, if I go to there, what are the chances for me getting hit or... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Lydia Lunch, and I mean, the odds are getting higher here. Well, I don't think there might be witches in the house, but I don't think they're going to be pugilist witches. Okay. So I think they're going to be okay. I'm usually the guy with a striped shirt in the audience. So, well, we might have to we might have to pick you out of the crowd in that case. Ah. <laughs> and then, and also, you're appearing with Luke Sant. Yes, I am. Luke and I have, have known each other since 77 when we both worked at the Strand Bookstore in New York. Oh, and, wow. you know, I absolutely adore his writing. He's Me such too. A yeah, We're yeah. huge fans. We're huge such, fans. Oh, such a genius. Have you guys had him on the show? No. Yeah, we should have. We actually yeah. discussed what his recent book, just the two of us. Yeah, The but, Question uh, of Essays, yes. Um, There's a lot of music in that book, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was great. It was such a fun book. I I first discovered him when I moved to New York in the early 90s, and that friend of mine said, oh, you got to read Luke Sant's book on New Mm. York. And it was just like that ended up being like my tour guide to the city. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, you couldn't find a better tour guide than Low Life. That's great. So both of you worked at the Strand at the same time. Yeah, Jeez. yeah, it's pretty exciting. Oh, that's amazing. That's great. Um, yeah, a lot of people went through. That's my alma mater because I didn't really go to school. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's a pretty damn good alma mater. Yeah, so don't you have so. to take a test to get a job you there? Do, you do actually. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you know, thanks to Peter Lochner, I kind of knew my way around that test. So, oh, good for you. <laughs> well, I'm guessing you were a voracious reader all along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Had to be. Had Peter to be. was was not. I won't say he was close, but he was very much inspired, or he, he greatly admired uh, Tom Verlaine of television. 
Oh, he was just, that was his, you know, his idol. Well, he I loved think. Tom, loved his, his playing. And, and me too. I mean, I, I absolutely think that television was probably the most um, poetic rock band that has ever existed. I mean, the, the, the guitars, I went to see them play at, where was it? A place in the village. And I can't remember right now, but it, it, it was one of the most transcendent gigs I'd ever witnessed. The way mm. Tom and Richard Lloyd were playing off of each other, it's like the room just elevated. Wow. You know, the sound of it, just incredible. Yeah. The, their melodic sense and the, the way they would play with space. They knew when to stop and when to be silent and when to climb. You know, it was just incredible. Mm. Berlin is so uh, myst- such a mysterious figure to me um, <laughs> to this day. I mean... I've met people who, who who met him or knew him, but it's kind of interesting. His voice is kind of silent in all the recent uh, music memoirs by various musicians, even like Richard Hell's book, which I liked a lot. Mm-hmm. But I didn't get a real sense of Tom Verlaine's character, or not character, but his, the essence of, well, not, you know the essence of Tom Verlaine, but he's like a ghost-like figure in, 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 the, in the narration sometimes. Yeah, it's true. He is... He, He's, he's very like uh, I can tell the guy is just enamored of solitude, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so, someone told me they see him sometimes lingering around the, you know, the open book bins outside of the Strand Bookstore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he's always been, you're, it's it's true. He's always been a very silent uh, presence in all of this, um, mm-hmm. but but in a way that isn't that magical because his music speaks for him. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to know mystery. more about him, but I think maybe I should know. Maybe the mystery maybe. is a part of the package. Mystery, yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's very intriguing. You know. Yeah, I've seen him play quite a few times since the '80s, and you know, solos. Actually, I saw the television reunion too. But he, every time he blows me away. I'm just yeah. Ugh, it's some I of know. The best shows I've ever seen. It's really. like he he paints. It's almost like he paints words on a page, but with notes in air you know yes like, mm. it's a very poetic sense that i've never heard anybody approach actually peter lochner approached that like if you listen to the end of uh, yes solution by yes. Perugu, his mm. solo is breathtaking it's very like a, strong melody is pointing yes out. yes yes very beautiful it is sort of i don't know if it's berlin like or you know or vice versa but there is a connection between the two guitarists of some yeah. sort Amazing, yeah, amazing work. Yeah, apparently um, Tom had, was thinking about replacing Richard at one point, probably because of some kind of personality thing. But um, he he thought about Peter um, to fill that role for a minute. Mm. But Peter just, I think they met and he Peter got drunk and screwed the whole thing up. So, mm. Mm. which was probably all all good because you know then. Tom and Richard wouldn't have kept making music together, and they did yes. do stunning albums. So yes, that's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah. That's true. I was listening to Peter's cover of "Is It See No Evil?" I think it was yes. on the box. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's fun. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> Peter definitely had impeccable taste, and yes. <laughs> all the covers that he does are just yes. like all my favorite songs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Adele, it's been a great honor to have you on our show. Oh, it's been such a pleasure, and I'm so grateful that you had had me on. I'm I'm really happy. Well, we're definitely going to have you back. It's a very difficult show for me because I really I, I really mean that we should have you on for like nine episodes. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. There goes the helium again. No, it's just it's just it's just, it's just sort of mind boggling, like LaBelle to you to you know Peter. I mean, it's a huge landscape, but yet you with those two books, you make it a very intimate very inviting um, world and it's um, you know it's a great read to read those books side by side oh thank you thank you well I've got another one that's coming out in the spring and it's it's not the no New York book it's a memoir about my childhood excellent oh, wow. okay and you know I was a reform school girl and I have some stories so yeah yes <laughs> like a Shangri-La that, you know that is such an antiquated um uh, word now reformatory people don't mm-hmm. call them that anymore they call them camps yes camps? camps yes i don't know i don't think that's any better <laughs> <laughs> that's true that's true <laughs> it's 
because my mind goes to a very dark place. But yeah, you came out. You you came out so well. You're such a well developed person. So there must have been something good about that back uh, background. Well, listen, the music clearly had something to do with it. For uh, sure, but a personal strength. I'm not that well developed. Okay. Uh, so so you have a childhood memoir book coming, and yes. then and then like uh, then the No New York World eventually. Yes, no New York will come after that. Sometime. But you need more money. Is that it? You need us to raise money? Uh, no. You know? <laughs> no. Uh, everything the memoir is a done deal, right? <laughs> yeah, the memoir is already a done deal, and Great. everything is blessedly going according to plan right now. So. Congratulations right. on that. We're looking, we're both looking very much very forward much. to this. Yes. Thank you. Thank you yes. both. And um, it's been a pleasure. Yes. Oh, and our pleasure. Uh, Kimley, what's. We have another show, right? Is it Adele? Is that our next show? Adele, and then Adele, and then Adele. Adele is definitely going to be back for sure. If she chooses to be a guest, I mean, she might think this is enough. Or maybe. Uh, <laughs> ask me back anytime, and I'll bring my boxing gloves. So that I can... <laughs> yeah. Excellent. How, excellent. How great is that? <laughs> so what's our next episode? Uh, What's our next so one? our next one is um, we're going to be discussing why Marianne Faithful matters. We're going to be doing another book in the Why Music Matters series. Did you dare write that book as well? <laughs> no, you know who wrote that? Tanya Pearson, who's a friend yes. of mine, and it's a great, great book. It's oh, really wonderful! Great. Yes. Oh, wonderful! We haven't read it yet, so yeah, it's so good. Uh, how great. could that be bad? But that's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Everybody can follow us on uh, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter for all the latest news. And we have playlists for all of our episodes on both Spotify and Apple Music. And we have links to everything on our website at bookmusic.com, B-O-O-K-M-U-S-I-K.com. So thank you for listening, everyone. Take care, everybody. See you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>